we are in a series on the Proverbs because we believe that life is more than knowledge. Life's flourishing depends mightily on this thing it refers to as wisdom. And for the last several weeks, we've touched on a bunch of topics that require wisdom that have been pretty in your face, pretty pointed. Sermons on sex, sermons on leadership and politics. Last week, Colin preached on the topic of wisdom for enacting justice in this world as it relates to the justice of God. This morning, we're taking up perhaps the most poignant topic we can when it comes to relating to the Lord, and that is the idea or the question of, to what extent is God present in the affairs of humanity? Does he care? Does he listen? Does he act? Because there may be a no more frustrating thing that we contend with if we believe that God is and that he's good in trying to understand how he works in this world and how we're to live in that moment. And I want to set that up by showing you a scene from a classic film that you may have seen called Lawrence of Arabia. It's based on a true story about a British officer named T.E. Lawrence who was commissioned by the British uh, government to come alongside some Hashemite rebels who were Arabs who were trying to stop the spread of the Ottoman Empire. And it was Lawrence's um, just uh, gobsmackingly bewildering idea that the only way to, to forestall the Ottoman Empire's advance was to, to attack this, this supply port, the port city of Aqaba, which was on the east coast of Africa. But the only way to get there, the only way for these Arabs and their their rebels to get there was to cross this sprawling desert that they affectionately referred to as the anvil because the punishing heat would be like an anvil upon your head. And Lawrence said, we got to go there. That's how we're going to do it. And so he convinces the Arabs. And in this scene, they are nearing, having crossed the end of that desert, nearing the port city of Yaqaba. But here in this scene, they're realizing that one of their own in this caravan has at some point on their nighttime journey fallen asleep and fallen off his camel. And there, in that moment, you're going to hear two worldviews clash about what to do in two minutes and 26 seconds. I apologize in advance. It is as if you're watching the scene through sunglasses. But it was David Lean's attempt to portray a scene at night in the desert. Here we go. Have we done it? No. But we're off the anvil. Thank God for that, anyway. Yes, thank you. Orance, I do not think you know how you have tempted him. I know. We've done it. God willing. When do we reach the wells? God willing. Midday. Then we've done it. Thank you, Moritz. Thank you. Orens. Gassim. What's happened to it? God knows. Why don't you stop? For what? He will be dead by midday. We must go back. What for? To die with Gassim? In one hour comes the sun. In God's name, understand. We cannot go back. I can. 
Take the boys. If you go back, you kill yourself, is all. Gassim, you have killed already. Get out of my way. Gassim's time is come, Marvens. It is written. Nothing is written. Go back, then! What did you bring us here for with your blasphemous conceit? Hey, English blasphemer! Akaba! Was it Akaba? You will not be at Akaba English. Go back, blasphemer! But you will not be at Akaba! I shall be at Akaba. That is written. In here. That's how you ride a camel. <laughs> if only camels could speak. It really went fast there, right? But you heard this clash. You hear the, the Arabs that are journeying, seeing Gossam apparently is both behind. He falls asleep, and they just say, hey, man, it's written. It is written. Clearly, this has happened. It was God's will. Don't press against it. It is written. God is active, and here... You are foolish to try to overturn the set of circumstances that you find yourself in. It is written. And then T.E. Lawrence represents sort of British enlightenment. Nothing is written. Your God may be an observer at best, but he's most likely not even existent. So anything that's going to be done in this life is on your back. Over here, the Arabs represent the idea that God is some sort of puppeteer. He's calling all the shots. Don't even try to cut the strings. You can't. Whereas Lawrence represents the idea that God is at best an observer. And so you have this sort of fatalistic view of God or this atheistic view of God, whatever you want to call it, to put it paradoxically. And that's the world. That's the tension. Which is it? Puppeteer or observer? We're all thinking about that stuff. But the problem is it can't be this academic subject that we just sort of stroke our beards and sip our tea and watch the film and go, hmm, what a curious discussion about sovereignty. You and I have to live. We have to make choices. Students who are about to go to college, you have this whole world in front of you. What am I going to do with all this new freedom, with all this new time? We have to decide. And so I want to show you a very brief clip from a very different film, The Fellowship of the Ring, when Frodo is in the Mines of Moria with Gandalf and he's lamenting that the ring ever came to him, that he's lamenting that he has been swept up into the story and he wishes he wouldn't even be there. Listen to how Gandalf helps him understand this moment he is in. I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces at work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Bilbo was meant to find the ring, in which case you also were meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. 
the story, the plan, the fellowship, it all feels like the Frodo, like it's gone off the rails, that this is a waste of time, it never should have happened. And Gandalf is there to say, oh, oh, Frodo, there are forces at work you know not of. Rest in the fact that there may be forces that are interested in your good, that some things were meant to be. And therefore, in that context, you have to just decide. You don't have to wrestle with what's out there. You just have to decide with what to do with the time that is given you. We're talking about the doctrine of providence this morning, but we're talking about it not so much about the problem of evil, which we're going to talk about later when we come to our series in James. Today we're just talking about this. What do I, how do I live? How do I decide? How do I use the time that is given me? And I think from the Proverbs we're going to learn what, what you have to do to decide what to do with the time that is given you. You have to reckon with three things. Yourself, your Lord, and your responsibility to your Lord. Yourself, your Lord, and your responsibility to your Lord. Let's consider what that is, and if you're able to stand, let's hear what the Proverbs have to say about it. We're reading from the Proverbs, starting in chapter 12. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirits. Commit your work to the Lord, your plans will be established. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. Don't boast about tomorrow, for you don't know what a day may bring. This is the providential word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you want to seek wisdom about grappling with the idea of providence, then you first of all got to reckon with a few things. Now, reckon, I've been in Texas for a week. Reckon does not mean a reckon. Reckon means coming to terms with something, wrestling with it, grappling with it. And the first thing that you need for wisdom is to reckon, to grapple with yourself. And I think what we hear in these verses is that you have to grapple with two things that are true of you. One, your own limitations, and two, your capacity for deceiving yourself. First of all, when it comes to your limitations, I think you hear passages that speak to the idea that you are not an island, that you do not inherently possess all that you need in order to decide. It's just not there. And so you heard in those first two verses in chapter 12 and chapter 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Wisdom about your limitations is to recognize you don't have it all. And because you don't have it all, you need to incorporate other voices into your midst to speak into your condition. You need a word from the outside regularly. It's not a formula. It's not a, if you, if you consult three to five people, everything will be better. And it's not even a guarantee. 
Because you and I both know, if you've lived long enough, there is some counsel that is worse than your own naivete or ignorance. You can be misled by others. I get that. But as a principle, the practice of seeking a word from the outside, of consulting with others, will on balance be better than going it alone. That's why Frodo's got to hear from Gandalf. Because Frodo was, if he had his mind, he would have killed Gollum when he had the chance. And so what does Gandalf say to Frodo? Don't be too swift to mete out judgment and death. There may yet be a part Gollum has to play. And if you know that sprawling story, you know Gollum has a part to play, a big part. But he would not have had a part if Frodo had simply relied upon his own intuitions, his own set of circumstances. And you know that. Not just from stories, but from your own life. You know there are words that had to come from the outside in order to understand that you don't have it all. You don't know what to do. And how you relate to one another and how you use the resources at your disposal and how you make very consequential choices. You know you need something from outside. You need perspective. When my wife and I were dating and we're getting to that point that we're thinking about this might be a long-term deal, what do we do? We talk to everybody we know to ask them to talk us out of it. Not because we wanted to be talked out of it, but just because we knew we didn't know it all. And in situations like that, it is not simply a, a factor or a function of not having everything you need to know. Especially in endocrinological moments like that when you're considering marriage, you have to recognize your capacity for self-deception. And that's the other thing you have to grapple with if you want to walk wisely in what to do with the time that is given you. When we're talking about self-deception, we're saying you can be so convinced of an idea, of a way, of a thought, which is totally destructive. And you hear that in chapter 16, verse 25. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. <laughs> How cheerful. Is this advocating some sort of supreme pessimism, a a cynicism uh, bordering on nihilism. On the contrary, it's only saying you and I have an abiding propensity for our hearts to run after things that are totally in error and to be so convinced of their rightness, have a righteous indignation to defend every argument against them. There is a, a pastor that uh, notices a phenomenon that um, when you just reflect upon your own life, that when you were 10 years old, um, you made decisions when you were 10. But when you're 20 and you look back at the decisions you made when you were 10, you say, man, I was an idiot. But then when you were 30, you look back at the decisions you made when you were 20 and think, man, I was an idiot. And when you were 40, you look back at the decisions you made when you were 30 and you were 20 and you think, man, I was an idiot. So what does that mean that's true of you now? You're an idiot. <laughs> like, get over that. You'll make idiotic choices. Because you will be so convinced of a way, and that way will actually prove to be far limited than you know. The most colossal blunders in our lives are those to which we were so convinced of their rightness. The Titanic, the only thing bigger than the size of the iceberg, was the size of the belief that it couldn't sink. And that is writ large in history, but it is writ very subtly in our own experiences and stories. You and I can be deceived. And if we just reflect upon that, just five minutes of that, 
we might be more humble in how we think of what we know and what we do. Now, limitation, self-deception. I, caveat, I, I am I'm aware that sometimes we do not have the luxury of time to say, I'm going to take about six months to reflect on this. Sometimes you've got to make a call. And I also know that sometimes we do not have a wide pool um, from which to um, harvest uh, or, or fish out new wisdom. I, I get that. And, and I'm also very clear that sometimes the wisdom that we get is very unhelpful to us. But given, given what these texts are saying, given what we're having to reckon with, the cost is greater to going it alone than to listening to a word from outside. If I might briefly apply just this point, I ask you a certain question. What issue, relationship, or otherwise in life could you use a word from the outside for? What issue are you resistant to getting outside input for? And why are you resistant? When you start asking those questions, you are beginning to reckon with yourself. And that's a beautiful thing because it is a mark of wisdom, because it is going to help you know how to decide what to do with the time that is given you. You've got to reckon with yourself. But you also got to reckon with your God. Because this is not just a, a matter of um, living within your own little frame, your own little world, your own set of experiences or story. There's something more to it. And when it comes to reckoning with God, all you have to do is fall back on what is the most recurrent theme in all the Proverbs. It's what you hear in chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, as we've said in a number of sermons in the Proverbs already about that fear, that fear is not this sort of abject fear of punishment from God, this, this um, just cowering in the corner about whether he will be upset with us. This fear is more nuanced. It's more full of awe. It is something qualitatively different than being afraid of like offending a boss. It is more like being afraid of offending a friend whom you love, who loves you. That's a fear of the Lord. That's a mature fear. And that fear is the foundation of reckoning with God. There's no way around that. There's no other part to it. But how does that work out in the decisions that we make? Like, how do you apply the idea of having a proper fear of the Lord? Um, you pick that up here in what you heard in chapter 16. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What are they getting at there in those three verses? Part of it should sound a little familiar because it's what we talked about in the first point. You and I are always tempted to act on our own intuitions without having first subjected it to some kind of divine scrutiny. We don't go there. We don't, we don't ask. We don't consider it. But where these texts are focused is on this mysterious dance between the human and the divine will. In every one of those three verses, you hear about human activity, but God's activity as well. And the point that those verses are making is that humans, that's us, that's you, are neither automatons nor autonomous agents. You are neither robots nor unbridled renegades. It's neither of those. There is something at work in our acts such that God acts to bring about his ends both in, through, and by our choices 
but sometimes also in spite of them. God brings it, let me say it again, God sometimes brings about his ends both in, through, and by our choices, but also sometimes in spite of them. It's a both and. And that idea is what persists in the text. But you know what? The ironic thing about our day is that that idea, in a different way, persists in our culture. It's this remarkable phenomenon in, in modern civilization that as, as recently as 500 years ago, you would be hard-pressed to walk down the lane and find anybody that didn't believe in the givenness of God, that didn't think there was a God or that some God was at work in the world. And so um, kind of like the way the Arabs in, in, in um, uh, the Lawrence of Arabia are there. It's like, it's a given. It is written, right? But fast forward today, 500 years later, you, you would be more often than not finding people that say, God, I, probably not. And if he is, boy, is he subtle. So you kind of have more of a, a T.E. Lawrence kind of mindset that's operating in this world. And here's the deal, though. As in that film and in other films and in literature and in art, you have this persistent subtext in all of those storylines that you hear this kind of word put in so many worries. I believe that everything happens for a reason. You hear that. It's there. It's in every Pixar film you can find. I believe there's a reason for all of this is happening. And it doesn't just happen in kids' films. We like that idea. That idea persists even if we try to push God or any transcendent power to the margins. The reason Gandalf says that to Frodo is because J.R.R. Tolkien believed there were forces at work in this world that had nothing to do with our own volition. The reason Shakespeare puts these words into the mouth of Hamlet, like there is a divinity that shapes our ends, rough hew them how he will, is because for all of Shakespeare's mystery, he held to that idea that there were forces behind the veil. But that, that idea, again, persists again. Now, that's, that's David Tennant in a, in a work of Hamlet. Now I'm going to show you a brief clip from David Tennant in that show that was on a few years ago called Broadchurch. It takes play in this coastal town in England. David Tennant plays a private investigator, his fellow Agent Miller. They're operating on a, on a case of a child that had been murdered. And here at the end of season one, they're feeling stuck. They can't find what's going to happen. They don't know who to accuse. They don't know how to solve this murder. And so they're sitting on the beach, and Agent Miller, or rather uh, uh, Agent Hardy, Detective Hardy, is sort of reflecting upon his past. I apologize for the British accent. I may have to translate at the end of the scene. But listen to them talk about the idea of providence in the world. Go. So why did you call me all the way down here? What's going on? I was here before, on this beach. Came here as a kid. In a tent, some campsite near the cliff. I tried looking for him when I first came. You came on holiday to Broadchurch? I didn't remember it was here till the day I arrived. It freaked me out. Those bloody cliffs still there. Still the same. I used to sit under them, get away from my parents, arguing. I kept bickering until the day Mum died. Last thing she ever said to me, she said, God will put you in the right place, even if you don't know it at the time. What were we saying that for? I should have had subtitles. 
That was English. But, but did you hear him say he's reflecting upon his time at that place when he had come to Broad Church as a child, and then he says one of the last things his mother ever said to him was, Mom always told me that God will put you in the right place even if you didn't know it. And then you look at her, and she's like, why would you say that, right? So here's the tension. Everything in this world has a meaning versus, I don't know if that's true. It persists. It persists even if we would rather rail against it. And that's why you hear in chapter 19, verse 21, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. That something is at work, forces are at work that we must grapple with, even if they act in a mysterious way. These are deep waters. That God oversees events is the teaching of the passage. How God oversees remains less definitive according to these texts, which should imbue in us all a proper humility towards discerning the hand of the Lord and his providence. And you know who teaches us that humility? Not only the sages, but the Savior. Jesus himself made it pretty clear that sometimes you got to hold all your assessments with a certain looseness of grip. In John chapter 9, he's walking with his disciples. They see a blind man, and the disciples say, so who sinned, this guy or his parents? And uh, Jesus says, you know what, how about neither? How about roll the tape back and try that one again? I appreciate your willingness to see God saying, it is written he was blind because of this or that. What if there's another reason? And then in Luke chapter 13, when, you know, people are saying, gosh, uh, people dying, like towers falling on them, and, and Jesus is saying, do you think that the, the, the tower of Siloam that fell on them, that they were worse sinners? How about, try again, how about you just get your own house in order? He's asking them to be more humble about their understanding of how God works. Every time there is a tragedy in this world, every time that there is a shooting in a school, People naturally and properly ask the question, where is the meaning in all of that? And several years ago in, in Sandy Hook, when those children were killed by that deranged kid, there was an author that asked her priest, where is the meaning in Sandy Hook? Is there any meaning in Sandy Hook? And the priest replied, not yet. Not yet. It isn't clear. It's not available to us. And whatever meaning there is, it's, it's not enough to make us not have to sort of lean into one another and weep with those who weep. Some meanings remain at a distance, some at a remove, some remain inaccessible for all our lives. But what these sages are saying is beware of making the deduction that there is no meaning in any of it. Because even there in chapter 16, verse 4, you hear it said, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. It is making a promise that there will be a day of reckoning for those who oppress. But, but make sure you hear that implicit within that promise is the idea that that wickedness is going to prevail for a while. Life is pain, princess. But God is still there. There are purposes alongside premises. There are purposes along permissions, and both are inscrutable at times. If you're going to decide what to do 
with the time that is given you. You have to reckon with yourself. You have to reckon with your God. And the one way to bring those two notions together, those two what seem to be irreconcilable ideas together, you, there is no greater answer to that than the gospel. That when you listen to what it said in Acts chapter 2, you, you hear in several words how providence had Jesus murdered, to put it maybe bluntly or too crassly. That God didn't simply acquiesce to circumstances, but that it was in on the hit. And you know who was else was in on the hit? Jesus himself. It was not the divine bait and switch of, son, go to earth, I'll let you know later what's coming. Jesus knew what was happening from the beginning because he volunteered. And so you hear in Acts chapter 2 that, that paradox coming together. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. They did it. He let it happen. But he also orchestrated it. And that was for yours and my good. And that's the gospel. You can't separate, you can't separate two ideas that are friends, even though you don't know how those two friends interact. As one mentor put it for me, this week. Now I know we are far afield, but how we decide what to do with the time that is given us is to be engaged and humbly involved in the dance and the mystery of his providence. Which gets us to my last point then. If you're going to reckon with yourself and you're going to reckon with your God, you finally got to reckon with your responsibility to God. And that responsibility is most simply and succinctly put in chapter 16, verse 3. Commit your work to the Lord and your plans will be established. Commit. Uh, what does that word mean? The, the, the actual Hebrew word is the word galal, and it literally means rolling something onto another. Rolling it there. Entrusting themselves to something else. Um, there was a, a bear on my street last night, I was told. Uh, that bear overturned my trash can. My first bear. But if you've watched enough Wild Kingdom episodes in your day, you know that there's eventually a moment where a little cub will kind of roll on the back of Mama Bear, which, what does that can signify? A complete trust, a complete abandonment and vulnerability unto that one that they, they know loves them and whom they love. That's a, a wonderfully evocative metaphorical illustration of what it means to commit yourself, but, but what does it mean concretely for you and I? I think concretely, it first of all means this. If you're going to commit your way to the Lord, then whatever you do, you do it as if his honor depended on it. Um, it's the adage, uh, good enough for government work, uh, good enough for religious work, uh, the idea of, you know, just get it done, you know, phone it in as long as, you know, you put the period on the end of the sentence. I think committing your wealth to the Lord is to believe that anything that you do for him is as a, is as a gift unto him. And you don't just sort of give slipshod gifts unto just anybody. If he is worthy of worship and he is worthy of doing everything as if it's his honor dependent on it, that's, that's one way to commit your plans to the Lord. The other way is to inspect your ways, your decisions, both the objectives and the means. Why you're doing what you're doing and how. You have to submit both of those. 
what are you doing for him? What are you doing at all? What's that for? Does it live up to scrutiny? But how are you doing that? Means are as important as ends. And if you're committing your way to him, both are important. I think committing your way to the Lord is also being humble enough to say, Lord, I need help in this. Would you bless it? Or would you confront me if I am so deceived? Um, God is not a principle. He's not a philosophy. He's not an idea. He's not a code. He's not a framework. He's a person. He's one God in three persons, one of whom dwells within you if you're in his son. Asking for assistance is the most reasonable thing to do, and I am guilty of it all. Because you know what? I'm trained. What do I need his help for? What a fool. He cares about everything. Which is why N.T. Wright said it pretty nicely. If God is a father, let's treat him as a father, not a bureaucrat or a dictator who wouldn't want to be bothered with our trivial concern. You commit your ways to him. You're establishing your plans by him. You're asking assistance from him. But there's one thing, the most important thing you have to do to know whether or not you're really committing your plans to the Lord. And it comes down to this one simple idea. Whatever you decide to do with the time that is given you, it can never be a substitute for what God decided to do for you in Jesus. If you want to commit your plans to him, you can never act in such a way that it is out to compensate for your lack of belief in what he decided to do for you in Jesus. To forgive your sin, to unite him unto you, to invite him, to invite you into the work that he is doing in this world. All of that he decided. By all of that, your existence is justified. By all of that, your sin is atoned for. But look, you and I both know that you and I have done stuff in our lives, if we're not doing it today, that is trying to act in such a way that if that whole gospel thing isn't true, then at least I got this. There are so many ways you might extend to yourself or try to fill a hole in your heart that you think if that can be full, I'm good. And if he did it, great, gravy train. But when that's happening, you're not committing your plans unto the Lord. You're committing your plans unto yourself. You're trying to do something to make up for everything that's wrong with you. You've creeped into his territory about what he decided to do for you in Jesus. You're trying to do stuff to make up for all the wrong you've done. You've creeped into his territory about what he decided to do with the time that was given him in Jesus. How do you know if you're doing that? I'll give you one last illustration that sums it all up. It's from a novel written by Elizabeth Elliot that takes place in a moment about a young girl who goes to a, a country in South America as part of a Bible translation project. And she's in a region of South America in which there is a, a, a people group, a dialect, that has no Bible translation. And, and she doesn't have any kind of emissary into that community doesn't even know how to start speaking their language until she meets a guy who's of that tribe whose name is Pedro she befriends him he comes to Jesus he begins to come to help her in the work of translation and she thinks at last it's all working out and as they proceed Pedro gets a leg wound and it's a remote area and she says you know what I got my western medicine I'll help her out help him out so she applies this um medication to his leg wound he has an allergic reaction and he dies her one 
key to this community for which she had dedicated her life. Now that door is closed, if not bolted shut. And standing over his grave, she issues this sort of anguished, if not angry, lament with God. And God, what of him? I am with thee, he had said. With me in this, he'd allowed Pedro to die. Or, and I couldn't then, nor can I today, deny the possibility, he had perhaps caused me to destroy him. And does he now, I asked myself, there at the gravesite, ask me to worship him? She's angry. She's bewildered. And then something comes over her. A new sense of realization about what it means to really commit your plans to the Lord. At which she says, Now in the clear light of day I see that Jesus, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If on the other hand he was God, he had freed me. For God is God, and if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and my service, and I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notion of what he is up to. Every aspiration you have may come to naught. Are you okay with that? Can you believe that God is still good? Because if you can't, then your plans are not committed to him. They're committed to your own glory. If you can go with all your aspirations, they can still come to naught, and God is still God, and his glory remains, then you actually have genuinely committed your plans unto him. God is not your accomplice. He is your God. And therefore, whatever we might do unto him might actually burn up before our very eyes, but not his love, not his inheritance, not his promise. That's the gospel. And that's grappling with our responsibility unto him. And that, while sobering in itself, should be a great means of liberation too. Because then all your striving is still resting. All your aspiration is still belief. All of your hopes for a different world are still circumscribed by a hope for a new world in which all things are made new through his son. That's the gospel. And that's what it means to decide what to do with the time that is given you. Let's pray. Father, I know that this afternoon I will not believe the words that I have just said. I know that my heart will sink and I will know that I will need you to work. And if that be true for anyone else in this room, I would ask that you would meet us both for surely it is easy to think about these things and to say these things, but far harder to trust in them. And so I would pray for the faith, that you would faith my eyes, that you would faith our eyes, so that we might live in this way, eager, attentive, active, but resting and trusting. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I pray for me and my others. Amen.